How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. Um, okay, good, funny story. It's, it's funny now. Uh, <laughs> so we had VBS last week, which if, if you were involved with that or your kids were involved with that, it's, we do such a phenomenal job here. We don't do, uh, there's, we don't have a lot of like bells and whistles and fancy lights and all that stuff, but just the relationships with the volunteers that they create with these kids is just uh, phenomenal. Um, I walked in, <laughs> I walked in one day. I like it when VBS is going on. I'll be, you know, I'm back here working back in the catacombs of this building. And uh, I walk out and just like walk in and just see, you know, the nuttiness that is VBS. And one day Jacob Caffey was running around as a quail man from Doug, had his underwear on the outside of his pants and he had like a belt around his head and he's running around and kids are following him. And I'm like, what is our theme this week? You know, like, like <laughs> what are we... <laughs> what are we doing here? And uh, we were at our house, like, dancing to 80s music, and, and uh, my daughter's like, this is how Jacob dances. And I'm just like, really? Uh, so um, anyways, they had a really, really good week. So my wife was one of the teachers. She volunteered and taught third graders. And I had a couple of different parents come up and just be like, man, you know, your wife was, was my kid's favorite teacher. And I was like, oh, that's really, really cool. And this one family came up to me and said, <laughs> they said uh, that their daughter came home and said Corey's wife was their teacher and that it was like her favorite teacher the whole week. And um, the parents were like, well, well, there's two Corys that work at the church. Which one was it? And she goes, the fat one. <laughs> so, yeah. So. And I'm going to put the blame back on you guys because I come in a lot. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I come in a lot during the week, and there are donuts around this place all the time, right? <laughs> Even today, I walked back to my office, and Brooke Tripp left me a half dozen donuts. What, is, what does that say? I mean, like, anyways, so I blame you guys for the fact that I've grown in this area here. So, uh, all right, let's get to the Bible. Um, yeah. Exactly. At the, at the five o'clock service, I told that story, and, and a lady like on the fifth row goes, oh, bless him, God. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's pray for Corey's obesity. Anyways, so if you weren't here last week, uh, we've been doing the book of Hebrews for, gosh, I guess about four or five months now, and um, we'll actually be wrapping it up this week. We're doing chapter 13. We did chapter 12 last week, and if you weren't here, we talked about this that at the end of chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says everything will be shaken. God will shake all culture, entertainment, economics, politics, governments, everything will be shaken down. And the only thing left standing will be the kingdom of God. So we asked ourselves the question, is that what we're standing on? You know, if we're dependent on governments or economics or entertainment or, or earthly pleasures or whatever, we know that those things are going to fall apart. So where are we standing? We talked about that. We're going to end chapter 13, and it's interesting. If you read the New Testament, most of the letters, most of the, the books of the Bible in the New Testament are letters, and when they end, I don't mean this derogatory, they're just kind of boring. You know, it's, hey, tell so-and-so, I said, hi, pray for us, we'll see you later, grace be with you, that's kind of it. That's not how Hebrews ends. Hebrews wraps up the entire letter, the book of Hebrews, wraps it up really, really nice, gives us very direct instruction, gives us very direct kind of blunt, uh, do this, don't do that. Very, very strong ending to this book of the Bible. And what we're going to talk about today is that the book of Hebrews shows us the lopsided deal that Jesus offers us. We are offered a relationship with our creator. And quite frankly, guys, we have nothing to bring to the table of that relationship. 
We have nothing to offer God that he doesn't already have. And so when Jesus offers us a relationship with God the Father, that's, that's very lopsided. We benefit from that, and he doesn't really benefit from it. And so we're given this deal. But are we interested in that? Really? Are we interested in, in putting everything kind of on the line for this relationship that Jesus Christ has given us the invitation to have? That's what we're going to focus on, okay? So chapter 13 of Hebrews, this is in the back of the New Testament, right before the book of James. Um, you should have got a notes handout. It's on version. If you have that app on your phone, go to the bottom right. I think it says more and then events and then all the notes and everything will be up there ready for you. So we've made it convenient. And um, okay, I'm going to read a little bit. I'm going to do my best to break this down and we'll see where the Lord takes us. Okay. All right, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to tell you, thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for a wonderful week last week. God, seeing Hundreds and hundreds of kids, Lord, just be engaged and to learn scripture and to, to be with uh, great volunteers and great servants and people that just poured themselves into those children, God. We love you and we thank you, God, for that experience. God, keep your hand on us today. Open up our minds and our eyes. Help us, Lord, to receive and absorb what you have for us, God. Not just to hear it, but to, to, to let it consume us, to let it be, uh, to be enveloped in it, God. Lord Jesus, we pray for every church in our community. We pray for every nonprofit. We pray that your kingdom is advanced and that your name is more known, God. Not our name, not our church, but Lord, your kingdom, your name. We love you, God, and we do all this in your, in your son's name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 13. This is a great chapter, guys, and we will go back and break it down, okay? Let brotherly love continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality. By doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though you're in prison with them and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. Marriage must be respected by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. Your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke in God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by foods, since those involved in them have not benefited. Now, he's going to give a laundry list, so he's going to jump around a little bit. And the first thing that the author brings up is love, Christian love. Now, verse 1 is referring to how believers treat fellow believers. And when it comes to this, the church is called to treat other brothers and sisters in Christ with special regard, despite their social class, racial uh, class, uh, economic status, whatever it is. In essence, Christians are called to treat each other like family. We have not done a very good job with that. Sometimes we've put social justice above the brother and sisterhood of the faith, and that is not the design that the Bible gives us. And a lot of that is because we don't even know what true love is anymore. We throw around the word love so haphazardly. Man, Corey, I love this girl. I met her two weeks ago, and I'm in love with her. And I'm like, what's her middle name? Uh, I don't know, but I love her, right? I want to marry her. 
And so we don't even understand what love is. We don't understand what biblical love is. And if you don't understand what love is and we twist love and we've made such a bastardized view of what true love is because we don't know the biblical stance on it. So if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. I know that one by heart because it's in every single wedding. But anyways, if you read 1 Corinthians 13 or Matthew 22 or 1 John 4 or John 3.16 or Hebrews 12, it kind of gives you a snippet of what love and the parameters of love look like from a biblical standpoint. We should go back and read up on those things. One way to show love is through being hospitable, through hospitality. And verse two is talking about the treatment of people who are passing through. So if you were in a city when this was written, if you were in Jerusalem, you know, for instance, and we know a Christian family is passing through either on work or just through travels or whatever, I meet you in the marketplace. I find out that you're a believer. I would say, hey, come over to my house and eat. You know, we want to make sure that you're well-fed. We want to make sure that you have a place to stay. We want to make sure that we're hospitable. And hospitality is actually a requirement of Christian leadership. This is something that 1 Timothy 3.2 tells us to do. And what, what the author of Hebrews references is a very fascinating story in Genesis 18 and 19 when Abraham was approached by three men and he showed them hospitality, not knowing that one of the men was the incarnate Christ and the other two were angels. Good thing he was nice to them, right? And so he gives these men hospitality and later finds out that they weren't just men. They were angelic. They were heavenly. And so the point is simply this. Treat other believers well. Even if they're not perfect, even if they make you mad sometimes, we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We also are called to remember those who are mistreated. And this is talking about people who are in prison. Now, if you don't know what prisons looked like in the first century, they look vastly different from what prisons look like today. And if you've ever been to a prison, like even though prisons are much better than they were back then, they're not great places to be. So these prisons back then, they did not provide food. They did not provide clothing or, or basic necessities at all. If people in prison were to live, people had to bring them food, bring them clothing, bring them the bare essentials. And Christians were the ones known to do this. Now, this is actually referring to people who weren't in, in jail for uh, murder or treason or something like that. These were people who were in prison because of their faith. And we are called to reach out to people who are suffering. And in America, we don't see this. We don't see people who are, in, uh, who are imprisoned because of what they believe in, because we have freedom of religion in the United States. But all around the world, people are not only imprisoned for their, their Christian faith, they are murdered for their Christian faith. In fact, there was a study done about a year ago from the BBC. There was a claim made that over 100,000 Christians are martyred every single year simply because they are Christians. The BBC said, well, that number seems really, really high, so we're going to try to verify that. If you remove all the people who have died in religious wars, like in North Africa and in the Congo, if you remove all those people, there is roughly about 15,000 Christians a year that are murdered for their faith, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 35 people a day. So in the time that I am teaching this lesson right now, one or two Christians will die horrible deaths simply because of their faith. Now, in our Christian culture in the United States, because we don't see it, we don't think it exists. And so oftentimes when tragic things happen on our soil, then we react with prayer and, oh, we're overwhelmed by this. And every single day, 35 of our brothers and sisters are being mowed down and slaughtered all around the world. So we're also called to respect marriage. Remember, he's kind of jumping around. He's wrapping up this whole letter. While the author was writing this letter, 
The author was making the claim that pagan marriages and religious marriages were ending up about the same. They're about equally as immoral. And if you look at where we are nowadays, we have a divorce rate in the church that's about equal to the divorce rate outside of the church. And what the author is trying to do, and I'm not trying to knock on any of you, I'm a product of divorce, as about 60% of you in this room are, but God designed the nuclear family, but as we see from a letter that was written almost 2,000 years ago, we have not progressed in our value of, of the family. I would even argue that we have digressed, and we have digressed because we have not pursued purity in the home we're not guarding what we watch, what we listen to, who our kids are hanging out with, what we do when we're at work, how we talk to that woman at work a little too much. We're not guarding ourselves and pursuing purity. The Bible says, think on pure things. Are we doing that as families? We're not pursuing contentment, which means, guys, we need to be happy with what we have. All of us in this room have more than we have ever earned. And so we need to follow, we need to pursue contentment. We need to pursue trust amongst us and develop strong families. And strong families begin with strong marriages. We are called biblically to take marriage seriously. And again, husband, this means guard your eyes from what you're seeing. Women, guard your hearts and minds. Men, be alert to the things that could distract us from being good husbands and fathers. That we're to be alert to these things that there are certain media, there are certain people, there are certain circumstances that we need to avoid because the cost of, of the nuclear family breaking down is huge. The effects of divorce, and I could ask all of you, how many of you have been, neg don't raise your hand, how many of you have been negatively affected by divorce? And I, I, I guarantee you, three out of four of all of us in this room would raise our hands. Statistically, they've done studies, abuse goes up, neglect, insecurity, even poor economic choices skyrocket because of the breakdown in the flippant view of marriage. The reason why most states, including the state of Tennessee, offer you a discount on your marriage certificate if you do premarital counseling. They'll give you 60% off if you do premarital counseling. The reason why they do that is even the government knows the economy will be more healthy if families stick together, if marriages stick together. And so there are so many repercussions if we have a flippant view of the family and of marriage. And another threat to the family is materialism. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with money. The Bible does not say money is evil. People misquote that all the time. Money is a paper that we exchange for a good and service, and there's nothing wrong with having a lot of it. In fact, there was a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, whenever Christians like rail on the rich, right? There was a rich guy named Joseph of Arimathea that if it wasn't for him being a devoted follower of Jesus, we would have had no tomb to put Jesus in. This rich guy gave up his tomb and said, we can put Christ in this. There's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with being successful. It's the love of those things that is evil. It is when we put those things above our responsibility to God, to the church, to our family, to our community. That's when it becomes evil. And we are called not to renounce money. We are called to renounce the love of money and to be content with what we have. But unfortunately, we are in a culture, I'm not talking about non-believers, I'm talking about believers who have become exceptionally covetous. Are you guys with me this morning? Listen, to be covetous is to break the Ten Commandments. You can go back in Exodus 20 and check me on that. So when we look at people and say, how dare they have more than me? They need to get rid of it and give it to me. That is breaking a Ten Commandment. 
And whenever we say, well, go take what they have and give it to them, that's stealing. That's another commandment. And so whenever we are covetous, whenever we are trying to impress people who guys, quite frankly, don't care that much about you in the first place, whenever we're trying to impress people, whenever we become entitled or we become selfish, this is not the mindset of the believer. This is not the mindset of a Christian. The last will come first and the first will come last. The, the, the words of Christ Jesus himself. And so another great threat to the family is anxiety. In times like we are living in right now, you guys need to pencil in somewhere or circle or put some kind of tab or something on Psalms 118, where it says, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? What can mankind do to me? Jesus Christ said, don't be afraid of those that can hurt your body. Be afraid of the one that can cast your soul into hell. Listen, I know it's okay to worry at times. Well, I have two little girls, beautiful, blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girls. They're gonna grow up in a very broken, messed-up world. And they're, I don't know if they're gonna be that tall. That's pretty tall, isn't it? Anyways, they're gonna grow up in this world. And don't get me wrong, there are times when I worry about it. I worry about the state of the economy. I worry about our leadership in government. I worry about public school systems. I used to teach in them. I worry about those things. And it's okay, but if I trust in Christ, we are not to be paralyzed by fear and anxiety. Why? Because the Bible said, fear is not a spirit given to us by God, and we are to be anxious for nothing. We were not created to live in fear. Amen. We are not created to live and be paralyzed by anxiety and fear. And so one of the things that can help us avoid that is we follow strong people who follow strong doctrine. That we are to imitate the leaders that know the word of God, live the word of God. Listen, young people, this is so important. And who we have seen the outcome of their lives. What that means is don't try to base your financial decisions off someone who's bankrupt. They have not produced the fruit that you wanna produce. Do not take your cooking instructions from a skinny chef, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> so we are to follow people that have produced good things. So when you pick a leader, when you pick someone that you wanna follow and get behind, make sure they are living the kind of life that you eventually want to live. Ultimately, I know we follow Jesus. I know that. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know that. But the Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus. So we are to look at people who are where we want to be. They're not going to be perfect, but they set a good example for us, and we imitate them, and we see the fruit of their lives, and we get wisdom from them. We need to also make sure that we are not swayed by false teaching. The recipients of Hebrews believed that ceremonial foods and rituals could save them. And Paul made it clear in 1 Corinthians 8. He said, no food is going to bring you closer to God. What he's referring to, it's not just talking about food. It's talking about any man-made religious practices. We are saved by grace through faith. And we are saved by grace through faith. And when we are, we are to conform to Jesus' standards of living, not man's. Let me give you an example. I came from a denomination where women couldn't wear pants, they couldn't wear makeup, they couldn't cut their hair, men couldn't have beards. I always wondered about that one. We couldn't go to the movie theater. So if I took the youth group to go bowling, we could go to a bowling alley where we could smoke, drink, and listen to like 50 Cent, but I couldn't take them to the movie theater. Anyways, we had all these rules, right? 
And we thought that these rules made us holy, that they saved us. And there's this false sense of security in that. And we're not to conform, I'm not trying to be mean, we're not to conform to the Southern Baptist Church, the United Pentecostal Church, or the Catholic Church. We're to conform to the standards of Jesus Christ. That's the standards that we are to conform to, not man's. So I like lists every once in a while, right? Here's a good list. To be the church that honors Christ, love others in a biblical way, be hospitable and be kind, remember the less fortunate, respect marriage and respect the nuclear family, that's a mom, dad, and kids, right? Do not become materialistic, do not succumb to fear and anxiety, follow people that follow the word, and be relational, not religious. Religion hasn't saved anyone. A relationship with Jesus Christ has saved many. Next part. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one that is to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they will keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. What he's talking about in here, he talks about in the Old Testament days at the tabernacle or the temple, the Jews that worked in the tabernacle, even though they had to have, they, they got some access to God, they didn't have complete access to God. They couldn't use all the resources of the temple. Their resources were limited. Their access to God was limited. But for the Jewish people that gave their life to Jesus and everyone who gives their life to Jesus, we have complete access to God the Father. So what verse 10 and 11 is warning us about or talking about is that we do not depend on meaningless rituals to get us close to God, but we focus on living for him. We focus on, on, on worshiping him in spirit and in truth through the word and through spiritual uh, interactions with God. And so it gives this analogy. This is kind of neat. When they made an animal sacrifice in the temple, right, in the tabernacle, they would take the, the, the body of the animal outside of the temple and sacrifice it on this altar, burn it on this altar and discard of the body, okay? When Jesus was crucified, they took him outside of the city of Jerusalem, outside of the four walls. They took him up on a hill called Golgotha and they disposed of Jesus outside of the city. You see the symbolism. Just like the sacrifice was brought out and it made the temple holy, this ultimate sacrifice was brought out, but it made everyone holy. And what we see is we are called to separate ourselves from the, I'm getting in kind of uncomfortable territory. The, the fact that Jesus was brought out of the city showed that the religious establishment did not accept him. And we are urged to separate ourselves from man-made beliefs and the security that comes in rituals. If you come from, and guys, I'm not just hammering on denominations, but if you come from a very legalistic background, like what my wife and I came from, 
there was a certain amount of security that is found in ritual. As long as I pray over this rosary, as long as I recite this thing, or as long as I dress a certain way, I'm good. And it's easier to find security in ritual than it is to live dangerously and pursue Jesus Christ. I put that in quotations because Jesus will take care of you. But when you lose the religion and you pick up a relationship with Jesus and you start encountering people and loving people radically, it can be scary and uncomfortable at times. But that's what we are called to do, to pursue him with, with a radical passion and a radical love. And one would ask, why would we pursue, pursue Jesus so dangerously like that? First is, we live in the present, but we are investing in our future. We are to be here and now. Jesus even said, focus on the moment because there's enough problems waiting for you tomorrow. Focus on today, that we are to live in the present, but everything we are doing presently is investing in a glorious future. He says that we are to be looking for an enduring city that has not come yet. That's heaven. That everything we do in the present is investing in the future. And so the other reason we are to live, quote unquote, dangerously, is that there are a lot of people at stake. That at the heart of Christianity is community. We are communal. God himself, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a community in and amongst himself. Like within himself, he is perfect community. And we were made in the image of God. Therefore, we are communal creatures. That we are to be in constant community with each other. That we are to help those in need. To share our excess now look, one time someone sent me an email and said, isn't it cool that Jesus was a socialist? I'm like, well, hold on a second. Socialism is a government thing that mandates that you give things to those less fortunate. And when I'm mandated to give things, I'm gonna resent the one that I'm giving to. Jesus approached it completely different. He said, I'm not gonna, it's not a government mandate that says you have too much give to the poor, that you should love people enough. Love people enough to where if I have more and they do not have enough, that out of the love of my heart, not because you're forcing me, but because I love humanity that I should want to share my excess, that is not socialism. That is a Christian outlook on the fact that we are all in this together. Not just that, we are to pull people up to a higher standard. We don't like to talk about this, but it says in the New Testament that if a man doesn't want to work, he shouldn't be allowed to eat. And so we are to pull people up and teach people, not just give them food and enable bad behavior, but say, look, you're more valuable than this. God has given you a, a good mind and a healthy body. And if you're able to work, God wants you to do this. And he wants you to be self-sustaining. He wants you to, to, to pick you up and make you better than what you are. That we are to disciple people, that we're to love people. Because the Christian believes it is not all about me. It is not all about us. We are to give ourselves for others and ultimately for the glory of God. We are also called to present a sacrifice of praise. It is his glory, not our comfort. That should be the focus of our lives. And we are to be consistent and we are to be constant in our devotion to him. We are to demonstrate goodness, which means we treat people well. We are to demonstrate greatness, which means we do things excellently. And we are to demonstrate mercy. We are to have compassion on people. Now listen, works don't save us. You're not saved by doing good things, but works should be a natural byproduct of the saved. When James was talking in chapter two, he cleared all this up. People were walking around saying, I have faith, I'm a Christian. And James said, you say you're a Christian, I'm gonna show you I'm a Christian by how I live. If you have to walk up to people and be like, I'm a Christian, I'm a good person. There's something wrong. We should live in such a manner to where people are like, 
what's up with them? Why are they always happy? Why are they always kind to people? Why are, they, why are they so honest and why do they do the right thing? And why do they go out of their way to show love to me? What is up with that? That we should live in such a manner to where Christ is shown, not simply said, but shown in how we live. We're also called to honor leadership. I'm not just saying this because I'm a pastor and you come to this church, but I'm a big fan of authority and I'm a big fan of, of, of Christian authority. And we are called to submit, respect, and be obedient to Christian leadership without grudging. Now, what we've created in, in Southern Christian culture is we have a lot of great churches in this town. So if, if you and I have beef with each other, people just split, right? We don't have to like act like Christians and talk about it and get a cup of coffee and be adults. People can just get mad and go someplace else. And so we don't submit to authority. We don't respect authority the way we used to. Now, I'm gonna give you guys grace on that. We haven't had a whole lot of good pastors that have been uh, good examples of this. If you wanna get a group of arrogant people together, pastors are pretty arrogant people. If, you get them, if you've ever been around a bunch of them, you probably know what I'm talking about. And so Christian leadership is called to be above reproach, which means we are to be merciful and we are to be fair and we are to be benevolent. We're to practice what we preach. If I get up here and tell you guys to do all this stuff and I'm not doing it in my own home, I'm a hypocrite and you shouldn't follow me. So should we respect Christian leadership? Yes, but they need to live in such a way to where we can respect them and we can follow them. And we are to honor all authority, Romans 13, whether it's Christian or not, but... Our biblical mandate always trumps, I shouldn't use that word, our biblical mandate always uh, is above the laws of man. <laughs> let me give you a good example. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to change subjects. Uh, let me give you a good example. Uh, do you know why we have a Parthenon in downtown Nashville? Does anyone know why we have that? You don't have to answer, but we're called the Athens of the South. The reasons why there is a, an exact replica of, of, of the Parthenon from Greece is that in the 1950s and 1960s, Nashville, Tennessee was extremely racially progressive. We were way ahead of the rest of the South as far as our racial equality, okay? So in the 1950s and 1960s, when it was still illegal for blacks and whites to eat at the same diners, drink from the same water fountains, even go to the same schools in most states, in Nashville, a lot of young black men and women and young white men and women would go into diners and plan sit-in protests. They weren't violent. They wouldn't do anything. They wouldn't walk around and break windows or anything like that. They would sit down at a diner and they would order food, right? And they would sit there and both white people and black people would get their heads bashed in. They would get beat up, dragged out on the street, shot with fire hoses, imprisoned sometimes. Horrible things would happen to them, but they were standing up for something that quite frankly is biblically right, equality. And they did this and they broke man-made laws in order to raise up the laws of God. And that was completely appropriate. And there was a wonderful pastor named Martin Luther King Jr. that kind of led that whole revolution. And so sometimes we are called to push God's mandates above the mandates of mankind. Last part. Pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. And I especially urge you to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. He means so I can come back and see you. Now may the God of peace who brought, uh, brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with all that is good to do his will, working in what is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, glory belongs to him forever and ever. Amen. Brothers, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation, for I have written it to you briefly. 
Be aware that our brother Timothy has been released, and if he comes soon enough, he will be with me when I see you. Greet your leaders and all the saints. Those who are from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. What the author says, he or she, some people believe a woman named Phoebe might have actually written the book of Hebrews. That's probably not the case because a woman wouldn't have been traveling with a man like that doing mission work. So it was probably a man. But this author says while they're traveling that they have a clear conscience and that they're acting honorably in everything. The reason why that's important, they're not being arrogant. But if I ask you to pray for me during my, my hard times, it makes it easier for you to pray for me if I say, hey, look, I'm doing my best. I'm trying my best to act honorably. I'm trying my best to have a clear conscience. And it gives you kind of more of a reason to want to pray for me. I'm trying my hardest. The author also asks for intercessory prayer, intercession. They knew, or, or we see that there are some kind of circumstances that kept the author from going to where these people were. And the author believed, listen, this is so important. The author believed that if they prayed, it could change those circumstances. God could move things around, move some mountains out of their way, and that they could go to where they wanted to go. And this shows the power of the community. It shows the power of unity, and it shows the power of prayer. Now, I'm going to walk on some very uh, thin ice right now. Um, um, and I'm not trying to knock on anyone for doing this. So this, this horrible tragedy happens in Orlando, right? 50 people are mowed down, brutally killed in a nightclub in Orlando. And, and for some reason, it takes a catastrophic event like that for us to put together a hashtag, pray for Orlando, before we start reacting. And what has happened is Christianity has become reactionary to horrible things where, quite frankly, guys, we should be praying and fasting for our cities before a catastrophic event happens. So people are so quick to say, oh, crap, something happened. We got to pray for our city. We should always be praying for our city. We should be praying for the leadership of our city. We should be praying for the leadership of our nation. We should be praying for the world at large. We should be praying, interceding, and fasting. But it's... <laughs> We've come into this reactionary thing to where we just, we just wait till, the, till, till the, something happens, until 50 people lose their lives. And we're like, oh, wait, we're dependent on Jesus, aren't we? And we've become reactionary. And Christianity is not called to be reactionary. It says in the Bible, we are to storm the gates of hell. You guys know gates don't move, right? That means that we are called to be offensive, that we are called to be proactive, that we are to tackle the darkness. We're not to wait for the darkness to tackle us and be like, oh, we need light. We're to be actively seeking out dark places and shining the light of the Holy Spirit on them. But we are reactionary, and that's not the way we're supposed to be. He also says, may the God of peace be with you. He says, Jesus is peaceful. I love what it says, the shepherd that leads us, leads us through tough times, and that God will bring out the best in us if we will trust him, if we will let him equip us, if we will let him work out what is pleasing in his sight. Not what I want God to do, but God, whatever is pleasing to you, work that out in me. And it's the work of Christ that enables us to be efficient and to work and to live and function properly. It is what God does, and we have to invoke that in our lives. And so the author says, hey, our brother Timothy is going to be heading your way. If you don't know who Timothy is, uh, Paul was kind of his, his mentor. Timothy was kind of Paul's protege. He was a young, kind of up-and-coming, dynamic, uh, charismatic leader. And he was coming up. He had just been set free from jail. And obviously, he was coming these, these individuals' way. And he says, those from Italy greet you. We don't know who this was, but we can guess 
it was probably the church that the book of Romans was written to, the Roman church, that these Christians in Italy were trying to, to, to communicate to these believers, hey, we're praying for you, we're on your side, you know, if you need anything, let us know. And so he wraps this up. And he says that, that this was a brief letter given to them. What does he say? He says, brothers, I urge you to receive this letter, this message of exhortation that I've written to you briefly. Now, briefly means that he sent this and the person who was reading this to the congregation could have read it in an hour or less, right? That was a brief time for them to read this letter. But in this brief, kind of short and sweet, we've been studying it for five months, but short and sweet to them, this brief letter, it was very simple, it was very profound. And what the author urges them to do at the end, urges them to do is he says, receive this. It's not enough to just hear the words. It's not enough to just hear that we have a savior and that he loves us and that we're invited to have a relationship with him. We must receive him. We must follow him. We must honor him because as the author is trying to make the point, everything hangs in the balance. Everything. Your marriage, your family, your relationships, your future, your eternity, Everything depends on the fact that we either hear it and let it go or we absorb what we've heard. We've received Christ. We've accepted him. We've let God be the consuming fire, like it says in the last chapter, of our lives. And he says, grace be with you. It's gonna be tough. It's gonna be hard. You're gonna come through more obstacles, but grace is going to be with you. The grace of God will be with you. And so for the last four or five months, We've kind of had this invitation, not a sinner's prayer. I don't believe in that. It's not biblical. But we've had this invitation to walk into, to accept a relationship with our creator. That's what we've talked about over and over and over again for the last four or five months. And then it's not simply enough to believe that Jesus exists. James cleared that up. James said, even the demons in hell believe that there's one God and they're still in hell. It's not enough to just acknowledge that Jesus is up there somewhere. We must receive him. We must absorb him. We must be consumed by him. And when we receive Christ, that requires 100% absorption. That means that when we receive Jesus, when we get into this relationship, we must take all of Jesus. There's a difference between faith and saving faith the faith that gets you to heaven. Saving faith is to accept all of the instruction of God. Not just the ones that make me feel okay, not just the ones that line up with culture right now, all of the instruction and all of the discipline of God I must accept. I must submit to his will, I must love like he loves which means we don't enable bad behavior, which means we look at all people equal, which means we love people, even those who persecute and hate us. We love like Jesus loves. And we also stand firm on his principles and commands, even in the face of hostility. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little disturbed and let down by how many Christians seem to relent on their core beliefs when tragic things like last week happen. Listen, I'm gonna walk on this very carefully. I can mourn for those, those families and mourn for those friends and mourn for those people who lost their lives without agreeing with everything they were involved in. Are you guys with me? 
And so many people, whenever catastrophic events or pressure is put on us, we are so quick to relent on principles that we know are true, but social pressure has pushed us. And guys, if we can't handle a little pressure like that, I fear for the North American church as we progress. I fear for the state of Christianity if we cannot stand firm and stand strong on things that we know are correct and I can show you in the word of God. Saving faith is a relationship that results in righteousness. What that means is this. When you come into a saving faith of Jesus, when you accept, receive, absorb 100% of him, you will not be the same. If you claim to, to be saved and you live the exact same lifestyle pre your salvation, something is amiss. Something is not firing correctly. You have not completely absorbed Christ. Christ will get into everything you do. He will get into how you look at people, how you treat people. He will get into your finances and your marriage and your family. He will get into how you talk to your waitress when you have bad service and how you talk to your insurance agent and how you talk to your barista at Starbucks and how you handle when people come against you. you it, will, it, will, it will change everything. It will change everything about you. It is all consuming. And when we get closer to Jesus, we get closer to righteousness and we move further and further away from sin. That's what we do. And in this process, we are given tremendous, tremendous grace. Here's the thing though. The reason, and guys, if you're gonna be honest with yourselves, there's a lot of people in this room and I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. There's some of you in this room that are nominal Christians, which means you say you're a believer. And I think you genuinely do love Jesus. But there are so many of us in this room who have not given God everything. And the reason why I believe some of you have not given God everything is at the core of your heart, you don't believe that God has better plans for you than you have, you, than, that you have for yourself. There are some of you that won't give God your finances because quite frankly, you don't trust them with it. I've made my own budget and tithing doesn't fit in on that. We don't trust them with that. Some of you have not given your marriages over. Some of you have not given your families over. Some of you have not given your hopes and dreams over. I have these things that I want to do. And if I give those to God, what if I don't get to do those things? And we don't trust that God has something greater than what you and I can even imagine for ourselves. I was signed to my first record label in 1999. I was 19 years old. I was in college. I was touring. I was doing all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah. And I did that and was signed with a couple of different labels. And even after I got saved in 2002, I was signed with a record label in 2004. A couple of years after I was saved. Had an album that was released all around the entire world. And I'm like, God, this is what you have for me. I'm going to play shows to all these people. I'm going to get to witness to all these non-believers in all these places I'm going to go to. And God said, that's not what I have for you. And as vividly as I've ever had a vision in my entire life, God said, quit playing music. And I did. I remember lying in bed with my wife the night I quit. And I called the two guys I played in a band with. And I'm like, I'm sorry, guys. We just had an album released around the entire world. And I gave it up. But here's what God had for me. And I don't mean this in any boastful way at all. God said, you're not going to play music to thousands of people. You're going to teach my word to thousands of people. You're gonna to get to meet and engage and get deep. It's not just playing a show where they're there and you're here. I get to know you guys and I get to be a part of your lives. And a young woman that, that I love so very much left me a, you know, a half dozen donuts this morning, but left me a card that said, you've been more of a father figure to me than anyone I've ever had. 
what I get to do. That's a greater dream that God had for me than anything I could come up with. And listen, God has something like that for you. Whatever your aspirations are, whatever part, whatever corner of your heart that you're afraid to go, God, take this. God has something better. He has something better. And even if it's not in this lifetime, you will receive joy and contentment because the word says so if you give your life to Christ. You may not have all the material things that you want now, but listen, we will get the keys to a kingdom where the gates are pearls, the streets are gold, the foundations are made of the most precious stones. God will create this city. That If you study the Bible, the city is about half the size of the United States. And then it says it will come down and rest on a new earth. And it says in Revelation that the gates will be open, which leads me to believe we can leave the city and explore a whole new earth. Does that give you chills? God says, give me your dreams and I will outgive you on every single level. Every single level. Give me your aspirations. Give me your hopes. Give me your fears. Give me your family. Give it all to me and I will return it back to you in a way you could never imagine. One day, guys, if we accept this invitation to walk with the creator God, if we accept this invitation, one day we will literally walk with the creator God. When God created Adam, it says he walked around with Adam in the cool of the day. God created man not to zap him with lightning bolts. God created mankind to walk around in the garden with him. That's what he wants with you. And today, if you're not a believer in here, I just want to ask you, has the life you've been living given you the results you've wanted? And if you're a believer in here, I want to ask you, if you're honest, and if you ask God to shine the light on your heart and the deepest, darkest chasms of it, have you relented everything to him? Everything, everything. Here, here it is. Would you bow your heads with me? If your heads are bad for a second, let me, let, me, let me get emotional for you. And I don't want anyone to misconstrue this. I've never had a good earthly father. Never. You guys have heard that before. And I'm, I'm not here to beat my dad up. But I mean, my father hasn't spoken to me in, in many years. And I remember when that relationship fell apart for the second time. And thinking, God... What about my kids? God, you know, I, I, don't have a, I don't have an earthly dad. God. And I was praying this morning on Father's Day, right? <laughs> and a smile came over my face in the chapel because though, though, though I thought I had lost something, God says, I'm your dad. I'm your dad. I'm perfect. I'm perfect. And I'm your dad. And I love you like a dad. And I'm proud of you like a dad. Whatever you're afraid to give over to the Lord, he's got something greater. Whatever fear, whatever insecurity, whatever hope, whatever dream, God's got something waiting for you. And it's something marvelous. 
It's something glorious. It's something that'll help you sleep at night. It's something that'll help you wake up in the morning different. Father, 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 I pray, God, that you shine a light on every heart in this room. Lord Jesus, let us be honest with you. For every believer in this room, God, for everyone who, who, who follows you and claims to follow you, God, Lord, let them have enough courage to invite you to shine a light on their soul and expose the parts of them, God, that they have not given up. To expose the parts of them, God, that they need to relent. Lord, for the non-believers in this room, for people that don't know you, Lord Jesus, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit just touches their heart. If they have not had the life that they want to live, if they have not found contentment and peace, I pray, God, that you start to provoke them right now, that you just touch their hearts. Listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, there's some men and women to my left, your right. If you, if you need prayer for anything, let them, let them pray for you. Let them bear some of your burdens. There's communion, 360 degrees around this room, all over this room. When you take that, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. I hope you hear this. When you take that communion today, if you decide to do so, if you ever wonder if God loves you, if you ever wonder if you don't have a perfect heavenly father, know that God gave his only son, that whosoever believes in that son will not die, but have everlasting life. He loves us. He loves us so much that he gave his only son. And all we have to do is receive it. Ask God to forgive you. Take your communion. Sit down and think about the fact that God loves you. And whatever part of your heart needs to be exposed, relent it. Give it up to God. And he will give you more than you could ever imagine. Lord Jesus, I love you. Protect my brothers and sisters in this room, God. Be with us as we grow closer to you. Father, you are the perfect dad. And I love you, God. And you scoop us up and you clean us off, God. And you put us on a path that is righteous and a path that is firm. Thank you, Jesus. Touch my brothers and sisters. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself.